Hi, I'm Rick Samprin in the latest Bill Kelly Show podcast. Are we any closer to finding out who will be on the task force the Ford government is setting up to investigate the best way to spend a billion dollars on Hamilton's transportation needs? We ask City Councilor John Paul Danko. A man from B.C. says he was fired from his job after complaining about getting a $6 bottle of barbecue sauce as a Christmas gift from his employer. The latest generation of cannabis products is now available for legal sale in Ontario. And Canada is golden again at the World Junior Hockey Championship. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Task force that the Ford government is setting up to investigate the best way to spend a billion dollars on Hamilton's transportation needs will still apparently consider LRT. That's after the province abruptly cancelled the project, after the government said cost estimates for the project had skyrocketed from a billion bucks to more than five billion dollars. We've heard from Transportation Minister Caroline Mulroney's office, uh, which says that the task force will, quote, consider both transit and highway projects, including light rail transit. And our office says the group will compile a list of preliminary uh, transportation projects by the end of February. So LRT... BRT, highway projects are all going to be on the discussion table. And as we know, we've talked about this on the show before, the province will select four community representatives who are not elected, and the city has also been invited to include an additional non-elected member of its choice. How are these people going to be chosen, and are we any closer to finding out who is actually on this task force. Let's bring in Ward 8 City Councilor J.P. Jan- uh, John Poldenko to the show. J.P., how are you? I'm good. I uh, just got the kids out the door on their first day back to school. So, you know, back to work for us as well. It's a nice feeling as a parent ushering your child out the door when school resumes, isn't it? It's uh, the second best day of the year, right behind uh, <laughs> September. <laughs> Very true. Um, we'll start with, do you know if we're any closer to finding out who's going to be on this task force? Uh, for, as from a city perspective, we don't know anything about this task force besides what's been reported in the media. Um, to be my honest opinion is, is right now it looks like this task force really represents the worst kind of token community involvement. It's half-assed project management, and in my opinion, it's exactly the kind of back-of-the-napkin planning that's led to the stadium disaster in the past. And Frankly, I think that our city, our citizens, the people I represent in Ward 8 uh, deserve better than this. And if you're pro-LRT or anti-LRT or you just want to see your tax dollars invested wisely, I think that all Hamilton taxpayers need to be very concerned about this, this direction that the province is taking. And I think all municipalities across Ontario really have to be concerned about this. The idea that uh, for unelected, unaccountable uh, community representatives hand-picked, uh, cherry-picked, we'll say, by the province to determine how a billion dollars is going to be invested in their communities. You know, I think that's unprecedented. And I think, uh, you know, even even the democratic uh, process there where, you know, shutting city council out of the, out of the decision-making process, I think um, everybody across Hamilton and across the province needs to be very concerned about this. Now that you're heading back to work, councillors are heading back to work, have you received a term of reference for this task force, and do you expect to receive one? Uh, I have not received anything, like I said, um, in terms of, uh, terms of reference, any information. Um, the most I know about this task force is, again, what I've, what I've written, um, read, read and heard about in the media. And, uh, you know, just 
The idea that this task force is going to come back with a preliminary list of transportation projects in eight weeks to to invest a billion dollars, it's you know, it's not like they're going into a room with a buffet and they're just going to pick, oh, I want some of that, I want some of this, I want some of that. There's very big long-term ramifications to this decision and the, that are going to fundamentally affect the city of Hamilton for, for years and years to come. Um, and how, how this task force can possibly do that without the resources of the, the corporation of the city of Hamilton, I have no idea because... Um, one thing that I've really learned as an elected representative is how much I rely on the expertise and the input from our city staff. So I'm not sure if the province is planning that they're going to have access to our staff, but how they could possibly do financial planning, growth planning, you know, without the resources of the city of Hamilton, I mean, that's that's a mystery to me. And it's it's extremely concerning. Do you have any idea how this task force is going to be compiled in terms of those community representatives? Is there a sign-up sheet at City Hall? Is there a website being created? Again, we, we have no information besides the fact that it's for unelected, unaccountable community representatives, and presumably the city can select one representative. And to be honest with you, I mean, just the amount of pressure that these people would be under, I, I'm not sure that I would want to be somebody on that task force that, uh, you know, again, we have elections every four years for this purpose, so that, you know, we can elect our representatives from amongst the community to represent, you know, what it is that we think that we should do as a city. That's, you know, that's why we have councillors. That's why we have elections. So, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's extremely concerning. Our guest here on the Bill Kelly Show is John Paul Danko, Ward 8 Councillor in the City of Hamilton. We're talking about uh, the LRT Task Force, or a, uh, a task force set up to determine how Hamilton should spend its $1 billion that was originally earmarked for the LRT project. And apparently LRT is still on the table. BRT is there. Highway Projects is there. We've talked about that as well. Is the Ford government sending any mixed messages here saying, listen, this this LRT project is cancelled, but it could still go ahead if the task force sees that it's viable. Well, we've already seen that uh, Premier Ford and Carolyn Mulroney don't keep their promises, so I'm not sure how much stock that we can put into anything the province says, really. But if if we were to review LRT, you know, with a genuine process and, uh, you know, give it its fair shake, I mean, we've already done that. That's why Metrolinx um, recommended it in the first place. So, if it has a fair review, it's still going to come in as, as the preferred option. So um, the way I see it, if, if you want to win the race, you, you stack who's running in the race, and then you get the outcome that you want. And that's, that's my big concern here, along with the timelines. So from what I'm hearing is that this is they're just coming back with preliminary options, whereas LRT would be complete by 2024. Right now, we have 70 to $100 million worth of boarded-up properties along the King Street Corridor. I need to know what's going to happen to those tomorrow, um, along with you know, where the rest of this money is going to be invested. Is it going to be highways that are 10, 15 years out, or is it projects that are going to be shovel-ready and complete in the same timeline as LRT? Um, just in the financial applica- um, implications could be huge as well. So, for example, if the province is recommending building new highways, something like the Waterdown Bypass, which doesn't ben- benefit anybody in Ward 8, but, you know, they're, they're paying for, um, and they're also paying for the long-term operations of that. So if the province is coming in and recommended highway development, 
Um, sure, they might be paying the capital cost, but who's going to be on the hook for the long-term operation and maintenance of those? So there's there's so many huge ramifications for this. Um, our long-term growth plans are predicated on density development in the downtown core and along the LRT corridor was a big part of that. So if we're not developing that to the densities that we're anticipating, all of our long-term growth plans change. And now maybe we have to start building high-rises out in Binbrook and Waterdown um, to take up the slack. So, I mean, there's just so much to this that can't possibly be decided in eight weeks. I know we're still playing the guessing game here because we don't have a terms of reference, but do you get the sense that the task force recommendations are going to be binding or non-binding? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the province's money, so they can invest it however they want. Um, but at the same time, as as the city of Hamilton and these our city projects, I mean, obviously we're going to have a stake in it. Um, you know, another concern is that is is the download the the long term financial cost because um, this could be downloading co- long term costs of the city Hamilton and the province sort of has has a, a history of that of, of downloading expenses, especially the Ford government in the last uh, couple of years of downloading expenses to the city. So if they're um, putting money into projects that don't have a long term financial economic development. Um, purpose, then they're essentially downloading long-term costs to city taxpayers. So, um, and, and the other thing is, is who knows if they're going to be recommending projects that the province already has on the books that they should be paying for. So if they're talking about widening the 403 or highway interchanges or something like that, those are projects that the province is already responsible for as, you know, they have the MTO within their purview. Um, so there's, there's, there's so many balls in the air, and, and really, as a city, we are completely in the dark at this point. Uh, the original uh, commitment was $1 billion uh, just a few years ago. We know that Metrolinx has spent uh, over $150 million in buying up some properties. So does that mean we're getting less than a billion dollars now? I presume so, um, unless some of that investment that's already been made can be um, leveraged to, you know, if the talk is BRT and we're not, we're just going to change the vehicle from a from a rail vehicle to a, a bus on tires, then perhaps some of that can be can be leveraged. But again, I, I go, I always go back to the stadium when I'm thinking about this because I'm sure you watched the Grey Cup and your listeners have watched the the Grey Cup, um, and it was played in Regina at Mosaic Stadium, which is this gorgeous, amazing stadium, and. I look back at Iverwind 2.0, and I mean, let's be honest, it's it's a huge improvement from what we had, but it's a utilitarian stadium. And that was a knee-jerk reaction at the last minute, and we, we didn't follow through, we didn't stick to the plan, and we ended up with something that, you know, it kind of works, but didn't really make anybody um, really satisfied with the outcome. And that's exactly where we're heading with this, uh, with um, reinvesting this billion dollars for LRT is we're going to end up with an income that an outcome that really doesn't uh, doesn't satisfy anybody and i'm i'm extremely concerned that um we're we're going to be making decisions on the back of an envelope on the fly that without understanding the long-term consequences. The project tenders for LRT were due out earlier or early this year. Are we still able to see their cost estimates or, or has that process been really next? 
My understanding is that process has been canceled. Those tenders were due to be uh, delivered within 90 days, so they are due in March. Uh, my understanding is the province has canceled that process, so we will never see what the actual costs of LRT were going to be, and I would suggest that was probably by design. Yeah, that would have made the, more, the most sense to say, uh, okay, what are these tenders come in at? And then the provincial government can act uh, at that point. Um, uh, look into your crystal ball. What do you expect this task force to recommend at, at the end of the day? Well, I, I imagine they're going to recommend um, improved buses across the city, Hamilton. Um, and that's something that we've been working towards for quite a while. I imagine they're going to probably recommend um widening the link in Red Hill, which again is something the city is already has on our radar. If they're talking about other road projects and widening roads, I should maybe suggest that maybe they should take on the link in Red Hill as a provincial highway instead of it having it as a, as a municipal roadway so that um, Hamilton taxpayers are relieved of the long-term um, operating and maintenance costs. Same thing with the water down bypass. If that's something that they're going to be talking about funding, and maybe they should take that on as a provincial highway and, and upload that from the city Hamilton. Um, other than that, you know, I, I'm not sure. And it really depends on how um, how fairly this task force actually evaluates projects and who's on it. Um, you know, worst case scenario is the province already has an idea of what they want to see funded and what they don't. And they'll handpick whoever they want to make sure they get the outcome. Um, but if it is a fair and open process like listen ev- pretty much every institution business um you know the H- hamilton halton home builders association the chamber of commerce mcmaster mohawk i could go down the entire list of all the major the chamber all the major institutions and uh business uh, alliances and environmental groups from across the city that support lrt and know this project intimately so, you know, I think if some of those are involved, um, at least they'll have some of the background on it. But where it goes and who's selected, I think, will we'll really determine uh, what kind of projects the, the province recommends. And all we can do at this point is uh, wait and see. J.P. Denko, thanks for the uh, time today. Thanks for having me on, Rick. John Paul Denko is the councillor for Ward 8 in the city of Hamilton, reflecting on uh, this uh, task force that by the end of February, we hear will compile a list of preliminary transportation projects that Hamilton's $1 billion, or I guess less, the $165 million that Metrolinx has already spent, uh, can be used for. And uh, I'm thinking along the same lines as John Paul Danko. BRT and some cash for the link in Red Hill. Which would be great, you know, expanding them to three lanes would be great. But would it be as great as LRT? I don't know. Only the future can bring us that answer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting story out of B.C. Where a man says he was fired from his job after complaining about getting a $6 bottle of barbecue sauce as a Christmas gift from his employer. This 27-year-old man worked as a general manager for Fastenal. It's a U.S.-based wholesaler of... Uh, construction materials that operates across Canada as well. So he got this bottle of barbecue sauce and uh, says it was like a slap in the face and complained on his anonymous Twitter account. He also tagged the company's Canadian and American Twitter handles. And he also got a letter 
from the company's CEO that came with the sauce as part of this holiday gift, which encouraged employees to share something from the holiday gift box. So his one of his tweets was, share what, my barbecue sauce? Eventually, the company found out about the tweet and fired him on December the 30th for violating the company's, quote, standards of conduct policy. And apparently, he says he was not offered any severance pay. He's only received his unused vacation hours, $741 in outstanding commission, and his final paycheck. So who's in the right here and who's in the wrong? Let's bring in John Pincus, partner at Simfiro Chumarkin LLP, and he joins us now. John, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Happy New Year, by the way, as well. Happy New Year. Um, so was this legal on the on the company's part? Uh, no, it, it doesn't sound like they have uh, they have taken the, the right move here. Uh, this is really just poor decision-making all around, and I, I think that this individual is going to be owed some money for severance, al- almost without a doubt, uh, in the circumstances. So he has grounds to make a wrongful dismissal claim? I would say so. I mean, certainly this is something that he should not have done. Uh, Probably better to keep this complaint internal, and it's never advisable to air your grievances against your employer online. But was this so serious uh, that uh, the employer had just cause to say that they could never trust this employee again? I, I think that's a little... Uh, it's a little much. That's a little bit of a reach here. So would a uh, someone like you say, hey, listen, if you're representing this individual, would you say, uh, listen, uh, th- this person didn't really uh, heinously damage the company's reputation? Is that basically what you would go on? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, and, and there, there's a real irony to the situation because... You know, presumably the reason they they were so angry is because of the effect on his reputation. Well, by doing this and taking such a hardline approach with him, he has now publicized this, and they have amplified now this uh, this whole episode. And and the real question is, would would any of us be talking about this if they had sought a confidential resolution with him? If they had simply asked him to remove it? Um, if they had maybe negotiated a severance package in good faith? And, and help them to find a new job? Probably not. So that, that's why I say this is really bad decision-making all around. I think that on balance, probably the company has made worse decisions because I think some of us would sympathize with the, you know, at least the knee-jerk reaction of this employee. Uh, but it's just terrible decision-making on, on, on both sides, I think. Are workplace complaints on social media becoming a bigger issue in employment law? They are. I mean, employers are becoming much more sensitive to that, and uh, a tweet travels very quickly. So employers are starting to develop policies, which is a good thing. You put your employees on notice and make sure they know what they can and can't do. Employees hopefully are starting to realize that their obligations to their employer don't necessarily disappear once they leave the workplace, especially if you're in uh, kind of a more visible public role. Uh, so it is definitely playing more of a role now. We're chatting with uh, John Pincus, partner, Sam Firo, to Markin, LLP, here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill this week. Uh, aside from social media, we'll just tuck that to the side for a second, is off-duty conduct a valid reason for dismissal in some or, or most cases? I wouldn't say in some or most cases. There really is a wide range of uh, 
places on the spectrum here, right? That the law is going to look at, is this something that detrimentally affected the reputation? Is it something that the employee can't do their job anymore? Um, is that, was there any threats made? Has there been any damage? Is this, has this happened before? So it's very, very context-specific, just like terminating anyone for cause for any reason. Um, so, it, it, you know, if, if you are, let's say, in an educational institution and you're making, uh, you're, you're online making racist remarks, that kind of thing has been held to be just cause for dismissal. Uh, but in other cases, if it really has nothing to do with your job um, and you don't have a, a history of discipline in the workplace, it's probably not going to be just cause for dismissal. In this uh, particular case, uh, a lot of damage over a $6 bottle of barbecue sauce. Right. And, and as I said, I think more than needed to be done. I think that the company's response to this has exacerbated the problem. Um, so that's, that's why, as an employer, you really need to think practically, you know, what's going to happen if I take a hard-line approach against this employee? Because that employee may decide to fight back, and uh, they have more power now than, uh, than they used to. So what should the company have done in this, in this case? I think the company decided, look, they don't like this employee anymore. They don't want to keep employing them. And any company has the right to do that. And, and often the right business decision, even when you don't have just cause, is to terminate. That's, that, that's very, very common where you don't have just cause, but you just need to get rid of someone. So it may have been the right, very well been the right thing to get rid of this person, uh, but they should have offered him a severance package. Agreed. John, appreciate the time. No problem. John Pincus is a partner of Semfiro Tumarkin LLP. You can hear more of the Employment Law Show right here on 900 CHML. Uh, Sundays at noon, from noon to one, it's a great program in terms of uh, employment rules and, and uh, whether you are owed a severance or not. Uh, some cases, uh, in most cases, I think that they would uh, argue that uh, employees are. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The latest generation of cannabis products is now available, starting today, now available for legal sale in the province of Ontario. The Ontario Cannabis Store is releasing 59 new products, including edibles, beverages, lotions, and concentrates. So there's a lot to choose from. Products are going to be available on the shelves of physical retail stores starting today. They'll go on sale online starting January 16th. And uh, the number of products will grow to 100 in the coming months as the OCS receives regulatory approval. Global's Mark Carcassol chatted with OCS Vice President David Lobo uh, last week to preview today's Big day. Have a listen. Walk us through some of the new product you've got out on display here today. For sure. So to start next week, uh, we're going to have a bunch of different categories. We'll have uh, several products in the soft juice category. Uh, we're going to have uh, one product uh, in terms of mints, uh, one product in terms of cookies, and then several products as it relates to uh, chocolate. Uh, we're also going to have our first beverage product, which will be an infused tea bag. Uh, alongside all the vape products you mentioned. And then obviously further expansion from, from here on out, this is just sort of the, the, the first footprint, if you will. Absolutely. So we're working really closely with our licensed producer partners. Uh, they're working around the clock. There's going to be many, many more products uh, that come to the market between January, February, March. Um, and so week over week, we expect 
uh, a lot more products to, to come out. We know supply is going to be a bit limited uh, in the early days, but, but producers are really working hard to get more out. You mentioned that limited supply, and, and I wanted to talk to you about that because uh, much of the knock on the OCS through the first year has been limited supply, high prices. If you're trying to fight the black market, those are things that make that hard to do. Uh, in this next go-around, how do you plan to fix some of those, some of those issues? Yeah, so there's going to be a number of different approaches we take. Uh, we've got competitive price points to start. We're going to have to look at how uh, consumers react to those price points, work with our producer partners to adjust them uh, if they're not effective. Uh, and then new products. There's going to be a ton of innovation. We have to understand consumers' uh, interest and, and bring products out to them quickly. And again, that was Global's Mark Carcassol with OCS Vice President David Lobo to preview uh, today's uh, release, if you will, of 59 new products, including edibles, beverages, lotions, and concentrate. So how big is this going to be? Let's bring in uh, Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business at Brock University, to tell us more. Michael, good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Um, are edibles going to make a big impact on the market? Uh, they're certainly going to make a very visible impact. Uh, they are going to help uh, with the public goal of trying to cut, reduce the black markets. They're going to help producers and retailers uh, increase their profit margins. But this is all going to take time, and there's a lot of uh, uncertainty about the details. Uh, talk to me about the uh, delivery process. We have 59 new products. Ultimately, that list is going to grow to 100. Uh, so how does that work itself out? Uh, well, this this time the rollout is is going to be much more gradual. It's not like uh, 15 months ago when we had the first legalization. All of a sudden, everything tried to start off on day one, and of course, uh, there were some stumbles. Uh, this time, everyone's recognizing, okay, this is going to be gradual, so there'll be a few products the first week. Uh, more products appearing over time as producers uh, get approval from Health Canada, as they get their production line set up, as they make their way through OCS. So we're only going to see a, a handful of products on the store shelves uh, later this week on the OCS website. Uh, so it's going to be gradual, but uh, I think we'll see well over 100 uh, products by the time you look at all the different foods, the beverages, uh, the vape products, and the uh, topical skin lotions. Which ones do you think are going to be most popular among consumers? Uh, initially, I think it's going to be the uh, vape uh, oils and the uh, food products. Um, those are already popular on the black market, according to uh, Statistics Canada data. Um, and it's important that the legal industry uh, have those products because up till now, uh, the people who are using them had to go to the black market. So the black market had a monopoly on those product segments. So I think starting off, it's going to be the foods and the uh, vapes. Uh, w the one that will be interesting to watch, I think, is going to be the beverages um, because there's something new here. In the, in the black market, uh, there have been teas and other drinks around for quite some time, but the legal industry has, has put some uh, research and development effort in developing newer, uh, more like cooler beverages, uh, sparkling water, that kind of thing, uh, that has a faster onset time than traditional cannabis. So drink it, traditionally, if you eat or drink cannabis, it takes several hours to take effect, and then it could last you uh, the rest of the day. Um, so they've tried to develop a drink that uh, is more like alcohol. You'll feel the, start to feel the buzz within maybe 30 minutes, and it will wear off faster. So uh, that's going to be interesting because Cannabis beverages have not been popular in the black market uh, or in the United States, uh, but with this new technology, the producers are hoping uh, they're going to catch on. They might even attract some current alcohol drinkers 
who want to try something different. But nobody really knows. Will all of these products have different kind of warnings in terms of this is when it's going to take effect? Um, I hope so. I, I haven't seen the actual products yet. They will, of course, all have the uh, the Health Canada required uh, packaging, which is basically plain packaging, big warning logos, uh, THC and CBD content printed on them. Um, I hope they will also include some uh, details. I, I believe the OCS and in other provinces retailers will be providing some of the information as well uh, on their websites or by their uh, their store staff because that is uh, important to know. It's it's very different when you have eating or drinking as opposed to smoking. And then the uh, the skin lotions are, are completely different as well. Michael Armstrong is associate professor, associate professor, pardon me, Goodman School of Business at Brock University, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. Um, how many uh, or uh, what's this going to do for revenue at OCS? Is this going to be a doubling, uh, a tripling? Is it going to be a massive impact? I don't think it'll be that massive. Uh, it's certainly going to be substantial. Um, I, the uh, numbers, uh, for, again, from Statistics Canada, the biggest market segment by far is uh, is the dry cannabis, the smokable cannabis. That's what most cannabis users prefer. Uh, so I think that will remain the biggest uh, segment. Uh, however, uh, the uh, food, beverages, uh, vape oils are all going to add quite a bit. And there's two things to take, keep in mind. One is that we already have the OCS and the, and the cannabis stores already operating. They pretty much have their cost uh, fixed. So if they add even a relatively small uh, amount of new revenue, that's going to have a large impact on their uh, profitability. If you've got, you know, like the stores that are open in the Hamilton area, uh, they're already paying the rent, they're already paying their wages. So having these new products come online uh, is simply going to add to the earnings without really hurting, uh, adding anything extra cost. So it's definitely going to help profitability. Uh, the second thing to note is that these products are uh, what I like to call value-added products. Dry cannabis is pretty close to a commodity. It's almost like a raw material. You grow a plant, you dry it, uh, you sell it. Uh, with these products, we've got uh, the cannabis has been processed to extract the oils, and the oils have been put into uh, either a skin lotion or a food or beverage. So there's a lot more opportunity for the producers to differentiate themselves, to come up with a product that's uh, unique in some way. If you can come up with a cookie recipe or if you can come up with a beverage that uh, is distinctive and that consumers really like, uh, that could attract a lot of sales. Uh, and that, in turn, will allow uh, companies to uh, charge higher profit margins. It's really hard to compete with the black market uh, on a commodity product like dry canvas. But if they come up with a winning design for a cookie or a beverage, uh, they don't have to worry as much about competing on price. They compete on quality and uh, consumer satisfaction. We only have a minute here. I'm envisioning a lot of Ontarians who were kind of thinking about trying cannabis, but will now do so uh, with edibles or beverages because they're not maybe a fan of, of lighting up or, or they're a non-smoker, but they want to try it in a different form. Do you, do you see that as well? I do. Uh, it's a big question mark as to how big that segment's going to be. Uh, I agree. There's a lot of people who kind of look at cannabis smoking and say, ugh, smoking. You know, that's something we as a society have been trying to cut back on uh, for decades. Um, but uh, would nonetheless look and say, oh, well, a tea, that sounds kind of like a herbal tea, except it's got something in it. Um, but how many people will actually do that uh, is not really clear. Uh, and for those of you listen, who people who are listening, uh, you know, 
those those teas and such still do have drugs in them. Uh, so you are making a decision to consume a drug if you decide to go that way. It'll be interesting to, uh, to watch. Professor Armstrong, thanks for the time today. Thank you for inviting me. Michael Armstrong is a Ph.D., Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business at Brock University, shining a light on uh, a big day today for the Ontario Cannabis Store, releasing 59 new products, including edibles, beverages, lotions, and concentrates. And that list is going to grow to 100 or more in the coming months as the OCS receives some regulatory approval. But, uh, of course, there is... Uh, a little bit of a proviso from OCS it says that supplies are tight and some of the products could and probably will sell out quickly. So um, I guess if you want to get your hands on one now, you better head to the OCS store uh, very, very soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As a sports fan, you know, cheering on a team and that team winning a championship or a gold medal or a, or even a big game, I mean, it just feels amazing, doesn't it? And yes, we're golden again at the World Juniors. Three minutes, 58 seconds left to play in yesterday's final between Canada and Russia. And Akil Thomas, star player for the Niagara Ice Dogs just down the highway, scored just a beautiful goal to make it 4-3 and clinch Canada's 18th title at the tournament. Phenomenal tournament. A lot of... Well, a lot of ups, obviously. Whenever you win a gold medal, you, you need some ups. But there were some downs for this team as well. Greg Frankie is uh, author of Epic Confrontation, Canada versus Russia on the Ice, the greatest sports drama of all time. And he joins us now. Greg, good morning. Yeah, hi, Rick. How are you? Good. Yourself? Very good. I was uh, very privileged to be on the show last year, just when my book first came out with Bill Kelly. And since then, I've had the pleasure and privilege of traveling As all a sports across fan, Canada. You know, cheering on a team and, and that a team winning a championship or a gold medal or, or even a big game. Of interactions I mean, from it Canadians just feels and Americans too, amazing, all doesn't it? And North yes, America, we're golden again primarily in Canada, at the World Juniors. Really shows how Three minutes, 58 seconds left to play in yesterday's final between Canada and Russia. And Akil Thomas, star player for the Niagara Ice Dogs, just down the highway. And I think that's Scored the reason just a why beautiful even goal today, even to make long it four, after three and clinch of the Soviet Union, Canada's 18th really long title after the time when Russia the has had the level of success. Phenomenal tournament, a lot of Cold War well, a lot of ups, obviously, whenever you win a gold medal, you, you need some ups. But there were some downs the world, but for this team as well. certainly existed in yesterday's game and the way Rick they Frankie came back from goals down in the third period and the way they Canada recovered from that Russia on the ice, the greatest sports drama of all recollections time. And he joins us now. Greg, good morning. Team Canada story yeah, Rick, very, good, very yourself? Great similarity. Very good. That was uh, very privileged to be on the show Do you think Russians have the same kind of feeling Kelly. towards Canada? And since then, I've had the yeah, I think they do. pleasure I and privilege of traveling all across Canada. Many years, they were book signing competition against other European countries that have long going back with tens of rivalries with Czech interactions from Canadians and Americans to have all across background America, with Canada primarily well, and I think Canada, that really that was shows the how and much the Soviet Canada Union Russia started their rivalry in the world still lives today they realize decades after in order to the Cold War and the 72 which they were striving 
But they had to that, beat and I think that's the reason why that even was considered today, unquestionably even long after the kings of the sport, which was Soviet Canada, Union, and, and of course really they had a lot of the time when Russia has had over the level of building up to that, even though they lost in '72 Cold War days, they still evoke unequivocally how capable they were over the world, the very best in Canadian players. Certainly, still a very very important part of their game and sports way they came back and I think goals down in the field period and the way they recovered from that humiliating when they faced off against the Canadians. The 72 Summit Series, uh, as you know, obviously, and, and, and a lot of people uh, in these parts would know, it was more than just hockey. It was our way of life versus their way of life. Do you think Russians Nowadays, have the same kind of feeling so towards that, Canada? But you still get kind of that, yeah, that similar do. feeling, I think don't you? Absolutely, for and so many, many things have changed they were in competition since those Cold War days. Obviously, in countries that have long not nearly back with the same kind of power in world hockey, they certainly are a power. Forth, but and I think it's arguable that they with Canada as well, and I think that. Individual that was the players in the world in terms of just their talent started level. their ascent but in the they, world. They don't have hockey. that they realize element that, in that order to reach Soviet hockey to which so they were striving. Remarkable. They had to beat the team that their was team in the country that they were considered unquestionably past the puck. The kings of the sport, so which was Canada, to, to build and of course they had a lot of five great of their players over the years building up to that, even though they totally lost in synchronization with each other. Obviously, back in those days, they had how capable they were compared to the very best. Canadian players from still a very, really very the rest of the world. Part I think their now, if you look at their there, game, I think they still a lot of those advantages extra surge of are not nearly as when they face off against the Canadians yesterday. The '72 Summit Series, uh, as you know, obviously, and, and, and a lot of people uh, here and there, in but, these parts would know, but it was more than just hockey. It was our way of life versus their way of life. Nowadays, though. It's not so much that, say, but you still get kind of that, so that similar Russian feeling, players don't you? Going over to the NHL, most and of so many players on that have changed aspiring to since the National Hockey League days. Changed the way they play the game, the Russians are not nearly altered a little bit kind of power in world hockey. They certainly are a power of that, and I think it's so arguable that they still produce their best there. And when you have a game like players in the world, the passions are very talent level aroused. But they, Greg Frankie is an author of Epic Confrontation: Canada versus Russia on the Ice, the greatest sport drama so of all time. There was some uh, high points and their, low points. Speaking of drama for Team Canada at this tournament, Alex uh, Lafreniere so goes down with an knee injury. Joe Valeno suspended for a game for a headbutt. Uh, uh, Barry Hayden, their captain, totally suffers a shoulder injury in the semifinals, comes back, back, back to play in the final. Joel Hofer takes over from Nico Daz in net because Nico was in net for that 6 nothing shellacking. Canada's worst ever loss at the World Juniors. But they still end up winning gold. Just a dramatic story at this tournament. Team if Canada. you watch the game yeah, yesterday, really just the continuation the style of the player history of teams, maybe there was hockey that goes different back different almost here and there, century. but... But in fact, essentially, it's now they 2020. Like 1920 was the first time the same kind that a Canadian team went to the culture, you Olympic might say, games, for the last and that 25 was the years. Falcons, so many and really, Russian players going over to the NHL, and most of the players on that, that team aspiring to that same national hockey league. It changed the way they played the game. It, extra it has altered a little bit of and to be able to almost invariably come out on top. There are some exceptions to that rule, but there. And when you have a large, I made a prediction. My wife actually is in Russia. Right now. 
Greg Frankie uh, is an author of uh, Epic Confrontation, Canada versus Russia on the Ice, the greatest sports drama of all time. There was some uh, high points and low points, speaking of drama, for Team Canada at this tournament. Alex uh, Lafreniere goes down with a knee injury. Joe Valeno suspended for a game for a headbutt. Barrett Hayden, the captain, suffers a shoulder injury in the semifinals, comes back to play in the final. Joe Holford takes over from Nico Dawes in net because Nico was in net for that 6 nothing shellacking. Canada's worst ever loss at the World Juniors, really but they still end up winning gold. Just a dramatic story said, at this I'm tournament for Team sure Canada. This because it's yeah, and it's really just a continuation of the barrier is sound. Canadian knowledge hockey of the whole history of this century. Rivalry. In fact, the prediction was this: it's now 2020, 1920. The final the result of game that a Canadian team more. went to the then I Olympic predicted games, that the Russians that was the win. Winnipeg Falcons. But if, and really, here it is, hundred years later, the game was Canada one goal or that two goals with the last goal being an empty net. Ability to just dig down for something extra when everything is on the line. Canada would win, and to be able to simply based on historic record going back. There are some exceptions to that rule, but why and large that? And I made a prediction. And that's kind of exactly what happened. It looked like Russia right now. An opportunity and, uh, to really put the one to who Canada when they actually that was introduced to her through the family the of Anatoly Tarasov. Uh, Anatoly Tarasov, the great father of Russian hockey, hockey and I met him at a hockey, of hockey conference they had outscored in 1993 Canada 9 to 1. and got and acquainted with really their family like they and they had all the momentum my wife going and that really I was able like to really make contact with a lot of the top Russian hockey stars that they would get three goals this, uh, in just barely book. over 11 minutes. But I made a prediction to my wife before the game, I think something that most people would have acknowledged was being all that very, very tall mountain this time. I said, I'm pretty sure of this just like based upon team when they were down two goals going into the third sound and they scored that early the whole goal to cut it to one. Canada Russia rivalry. Even they were the still trailing, I think it changed the whole the final result of, of everyone two goals watching or more. that game and everyone playing in the game that, that the Russians this thing win. isn't over yet but by yeah. a long shot. The final Canada scored the game was one goal, goal or two goals with the last goal being in an empty net. In other words, same feeling in district through yesterday. Then I then the Russians ended up ironically and that's the based on the same way that historic record going back taking really bad penalties well beyond penalty that. He pushed and that's kind of exactly Canadian what happened. Over it looked like the Russians had off all the way in the other end of the ice put in two Canada, Canada power play scored that and they capitalized a few seconds later and then when they took point, another penalty to take them out of that power play situation late in the game. Two complete those things games, that Canada five and a half periods of hockey they but I think they finally realized and it started at the junior level with Dave King and it looked like they had all the momentum going and it really looked like Canada was basically done for according to everyone as the dominant power in the world we're going to have to play with more discipline and those kind of bad penalties that can kill really, I think, right something that most moments. people would have acknowledged Canada largely did a very, that, very tall at the junior level mountain decline. But sort of they came the back just like yesterday with Canada when they were down to the Russians going into the third period. And that's why and Canada came back. But they also had to capitalize when the Russians and even though they were still trailing, I think, and they did what they had to do is they do so well so often. It's a phenomenal ending to a great tournament. Greg, always appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. And I just invite everybody to go to my Facebook page, Epic Consultation. The book is available at one. chapter store and Indigo throughout the Canada yesterday on Amazon. And then the Russians have found it up ironically. It's killing themselves in the same way that historically Canada did. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you. Greg Franke, author of Epic Confrontation, Canada versus Russia on Ice, the greatest sports drama of all time. They're on the other end of the ice. It gives Canada a power play, and they capitalize a few seconds later. And then when they took another penalty to take them out of that power play situation late in the game, those are the things that Canada used to do. But I think they finally realized, and it started at the junior level with Dave King, that if we're going to be competitive with the Soviets, 
who had really started to take over, according to everyone, as the dominant power in the world. We're going to have to play with more discipline. We're going to have to avoid those kind of bad penalties that can kill a team right at key moments. And Canada largely did that, starting at the junior level. And it's sort of reverse roles yesterday where Canada stayed disciplined, the Russians didn't. And that's why Canada came back. But they also had to capitalize when the Russians did make undisciplined penalties. And they did what they had to do, as they do so well so often. It was a phenomenal ending to a great tournament. Uh, Greg, always appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Yep, and I just invite everybody to go to my Facebook page, Epic Confrontation. The book is available at at chapter stores and indigo stores throughout Canada. You can get it on Amazon. It's a fascinating read, and it really is a great tie-in to what happened yesterday. Good stuff. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you. Greg Frankie, author of Epic Confrontation, Canada versus Russia on Ice, the greatest sports drama of all time. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.